This is Historian's Podcast, Extra Edition number 10. What will the COVID-19 crisis mean for future generations? Some thoughts from Patricia Walsh Chadwick. Uh, Patricia is a financial analyst, previously appeared on Historian's Podcast, discussing her memoir, Little Sister, which told of her upbringing in an extreme religious community in Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us, Patricia. Thank you for having me, Bob. You've written a blog, and I guess you do that regularly. You write a a blog and have an audience for it. And, And this particular one, this particular blog, looked at what we might be telling our grandchildren about living through the life-changing pandemic of 2020. First, can you please read us that blog? Yes, I will. Thank you. So the title is, How Long Will It Take? Two Generations If History is a Guide. My grandmother, even in her late 70s, had a habit she couldn't shake. Whenever she received a Christmas present or a birthday present, she would open it with measured care so as not to rip the wrapping, which she would then put into her pocketbook. Later, when she returned home, she'd run a warm iron over the creases in the paper. It's as good as new, she'd say, and now you can use it again. She explained that it was a technique she learned during the Depression, when, as a young wife raising two daughters, she, like millions of Americans across the country, had to pinch her pennies. Frugality was a necessary and virtuous way of life and bore no relationship to stinginess. For the most part, the children growing up in that era, my parents' generation, carried the memories, but not the parental anxiety of the Great Depression. They, in turn, became the greatest generation, and upon their return from World War II, were the beneficiaries of the largesse of the federal government. The GI Bill provided higher education and cheap mortgages, while the creation of the interstate highway system created jobs aplenty. Flush with a post-war sense of national security, if not yet economic comfort, and seldom speaking of the trauma of their years on the battlefield, those children of the Depression raised the baby boomer generation, whose primary connection with the dire straits of the decade of the 1930s came from the habits exhibited and the stories told by their elderly grandparents. Just two generations removed from the worst economic crisis in American history, they were detached emotionally from that era. As those baby boomers became young adults, they themselves became the first generation in another cycle of crisis and disaster. For a decade, they fought a war in Southeast Asia, a war that seemed to have no purpose, no end, and no friends back home in America, despite fighting as heroically as their parents had in World War II, they were scorned when they returned to their home country and received little of the government support that had been heaped upon their parents. They, in turn, produced another generation of offspring whose lives were only tangentially tarnished by the blight of Vietnam. And today, the second generation of those baby boomers hardly know the term, the Vietnam War. In a way, that's a blessing. We all have moved on. 
And now we face a new crisis, one that none of us could have imagined a year ago, despite the warnings by wise people, such as Bill Gates. Today's parents, the children of the baby boomers now raising their own children, are living their worst nightmare, the possibility that COVID-19, a deadly enemy against which there is as yet no weapon, could destroy their family. The virulence of this pandemic is so great that no one alive today has any recollection of the last time the world faced this crisis, because it was a full century ago. All of us will be scarred by this battle with coronavirus, but today's children are much like the children of the Depression parents and the children of Vietnam warriors. They are experiencing it in a different way. Why do mommy and daddy wipe down the groceries before putting them away? Why are their grandparents no longer coming to the house to visit them? Why is there no birthday party? Most likely within a year or two, life will return to what becomes perhaps a new normal. But the parents of this crisis will never be as carefree as they once were because in the back of their minds, they will always fear another COVID lurking in the wings. Today's children will carry an array of memories about how things changed for a time when they were young, but they won't be scarred with the perpetual fear that their parents are experiencing today. And by the time today's children become parents themselves, their own children will think of the year of coronavirus much the way we baby boomers think of the Depression. It was something that happened long ago and seemingly far away. Well, thank you very much. That's Patricia Walsh Chadwick with thoughts on the pandemic and what it will mean to their, uh, to our offspring and, and grandchildren. What about uh, Bill Gates? Right, I know now because you sent me the uh, uh, clip of Bill Gates. Apparently, he did a TED talk like five years ago, predicting a, a, the possibility of a pandemic. He he did. It was quite um, amazing to look at. Someone sent it to me during the middle of this pandemic, and he did this in 2015. And as you know, uh, he has been very, spent a lot of his own personal capital to try to rid the world of terrible diseases, uh, including Mm. polio and smallpox and and things like that, which in developed countries has very much disappeared. And he Mm. made the case, it was a five minute piece of maybe a longer talk that I saw, And he basically said the next uh, world war will not be from bombs. It will be from a virus. Mm. And, you know, how prescient he was. This was five years ago. But he made the case at the time that if we spent the money and if we invested in preparing for that war, we would be able to face it. And unfortunately, I don't think too many people heeded his advice. I'm mm. sure they will now, but uh, yeah. it was amazing. Now, the, the um, blog that you just uh, read to us w- was written before the civil unrest began because of the, yes. uh, the d- death of the uh, man George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis. Um, how has that changed uh, the pandemic? Well, it has been troubling to see... <laughs> That, you know, well, I would say, put it this way, most of the demonstrators, the peaceful demonstrators, one will see, 
on television are wearing masks. They cannot possibly socially distance themselves, but they are at least wearing masks. Tragically, the looters and people who uh, are breaking the law and not keeping to the uh, curfews often are not wearing masks. And it's hard to know uh, if that will have its own you know, disastrous impact on some of these inner cities where there is so much more congestion. Um, but let's just hope that at least the vast majority of people who are there during the daytime hours, going home at night but the time of the curfew and wearing masks, uh, are at least doing enough to make sure that they're not spreading it. But as with uh, everything that uh, impacts us during the pandemic, there's a certain difference now. I mean, because I was alive during uh, the riots of the, the 60s, let's say. Yes. And, and, and of course, then we were living a quote-unquote normal life. I mean, you could still go to a restaurant or a church or a bar room or, or whatever, and uh, it was not unusual to... Um, hug people and so forth. So when there was reconciliation, as you see now in some of the uh, protests, thankfully, uh, you know, it's great to see the police uh, holding hands as they did here in uh, near, uh, very near me in Schenectady, New York, with uh, protesters. But then you think, oh, dear, I hope, uh, you know, that, that doesn't make one of them sick. Well, there there is that. I do also hope and think that because we did such a lockdown truly across the country and particularly in the inner city areas that perhaps we have slowed the path of this thing uh we are coming into the summer months which has a tendency to reduce the insidiousness of of the virus and so um you know we have to wait obviously to Mm -hmm. see if it comes back in the fall but you're right. Some of the most beautiful pictures um, in the newspapers and on television are, you know, a policeman hugging one of the demonstrators. Uh, the ones where they've all been taking the knee, I noticed that all of the policemen have their, uh, you know, masks Mask. on. And, of yeah. course, a lot of them, while they're out among the demonstrators, do have protective gear. And I am impressed that so many of the peaceful demonstrators are wearing gear. But you're right, <clears throat> I'm sure there will be some negative impact, and it will be interesting to watch. Let's just hope it's not used politically as a, as a way of splitting the country. Mm-hmm. Now, up here, and maybe I should say Patricia Walsh Chadwick's in Connecticut. Um, we're up here in upstate New York, the, the capital region, Albany, connected Detroit, and Amsterdam, and Saratoga, and so forth. And we're entering the next phase of un doing the, all the restrictions at the state of New York, uh, as embodied by Governor Andrew Cuomo, was seen on TV every day with, a, with an update. Um, well, anyway, we're, we're moving ahead. And right now, this week hasn't happened. What's happening as we record it and the day before we were, we were putting this on the Internet, they're letting you get your hair cut which maybe sounds like a really small thing, but I've been able to get an appointment with a barber for this coming Friday. And I gather you wrote a more recent blog because they must have um, relaxed that restriction earlier in Connecticut. You've already had your hair done. I have. But my husband also went went to the barber shop yesterday, and he came home looking so fabulous. 
And, um, but tragically, the barbershop that he has used for, I don't know, the last 30 years closed permanently. And he had to find another one, which was not difficult to do. And he was very, very pleased. Uh, but in Connecticut, uh, there have been gradual openings. So places like restaurants were allowed to open around the 15th or 20th, I think, um, of the month with huge you know, space between the tables. And most of the seating has to be outside. Uh, mm. And I think that I know the dry cleaner has 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 opened up and I cannot wait to get sweaters that I think I wore for days on end uh, to be dry cleaned. Uh, right. But but they didn't allow hair salons to open until June 1st. And I oh. raised my hand to get the, about the very first appointment. But the woman who runs the hair salon, <clears throat> I've come to know just for years of being in there, and I talked to her about how she survived. And she was, uh, I said, did you apply for the PPP? And she said, yes, because as you can imagine, when you were forced to shut down, she had to furlough everybody. But she paid them over the last eight weeks or so. <clears throat> and now she's opened up in a way that spaces everybody. And it now means the hours are much longer. So she has an 11-hour day, and she stays there the entire time, 11 hours, mm. five days a week. But she also invested her own capital into putting in plexiglass separators around the sinks and around where people right. work and where the reception desk is. And when you come, she gives you an already wrapped, vacuum-packed uh, gown to put on. And uh, so she thought about all of the important things that had to be done so that when she opened up, people would feel safe and comfortable. And uh, from my standpoint, I thought this was really the wonderful entrepreneurship that exists in this country. It's representative of so many small businesses that have, you know, were terrified that they were going to lose their entire business. And yet, <clears throat> through this period of shutdown, they worked, they did their research, they found out what they needed to do, they invested their own capital, and now she, she will survive. And so, you know, in a way, the, the blog was really thanking her and thanking so many small businesses for their leadership and their entrepreneurship and doing what it took to keep their employees. But yet many uh, pe people are out of work, I mean, at these small businesses. I mean, it hasn't yeah. worked out for everybody. I hate to bring up the, the negative right away about that. Well, um, it, it's almost as though our economy is, is dissected. You have certain service sectors that are in dire straits. Are we all ever going to travel the way we did before? We would hop on a plane, even though it was frightfully inconvenient to go through TSA. But without people demanding flights, the airline industry is in serious, serious shape. And the whole entire hospitality industry. Uh, hotels, if you're not flying somewhere, you're not staying in hotels. And many, many restaurants will not be able to make it. So there is, it's a demarcation that splits the economy with, uh, you know, at least manufacturing will start to come back. But those services that would that need demand, you know, that are non-tangible, not manufacturing, mm -hmm. 
uh, I think it's a very, very long haul for them. Uh, in terms of the, your recent trip to the hairdresser, yes. uh, you, you've said this was an, uh, I believe you, you said this was, uh, uh, you know, the first time you're encountering a lot of people you haven't seen for months. And it's a little awkward because you're not going to run up and hug them. Exactly. I mean, when you see someone, whether it's at a restaurant or, you know, even on the street, you go, hello, so lovely to see you, give you a peck on the cheek or a little hug. And you, that instinct is still there. And suddenly you realize, oh, my gosh, we have to keep our distance. And, I, you know, who knows how long that will, will last. Uh, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, I don't have grandchildren yet or of my, from my own two children, but my sisters all do. And, you know, their little grandchildren are saying, I don't like this germ that keeps you away because their parents have told them, you know, Grammy cannot come because of a germ. And, uh, you know, all that hugging and kissing and, you know, just, you know, warmth between parents, well, parents and children are fine still, but between grandparents and children or the uncles and aunts, all of that is at bay, and we don't know for how long. We don't even know if schools will open in September. So mm. it's, it's a new way of life. We will, of course, get to learn um, how to live with it. But it, until we get um, a vaccine, which, please God, will be sometime soon, but you know, to test it all, we're still talking a year away at any rate. Mm. So it's going to be a very, very unusual period of time and hopefully we mm -hmm. will so many will come through it now you started your, your blog talking about your grandmother and her remnant of a depression uh habit where she would save wrapping paper you know be yes. very careful not destroy do you have any kind of behavior you think is going to last like did you wipe down your groceries and do you still do that and things you know like i wiped down my groceries twice and I started thinking about it and thinking, okay, if I am going to be this anxious, and I can see why parents would do it with little children, even though it appears that children are not as susceptible to it. But I thought, then I'm going to be afraid to touch my car door. Then it's going to be the box that everything came in and the paper bag. So after doing it twice and, frankly, you know, deciding I, it was more hassle than it was worth, but one thing I've done is put a lot of things into the refrigerator and into the freezer. And I've decided uh -huh. that that in and of itself ought to be able to kill things. And so far, so good. And my husband is older than I and much more, in a sense, at risk. But we have been, you know, he's been tested and I have been tested for antibodies and don't have them. So we have come through and I think that we were able to do it without being, uh, you know, Oh, doing overkill in terms of wiping everything down. And another thing is that as, as things open up, there, there's, there was a certain um, way that it was, I mean, it was scary, but a certain way it was relaxing. You didn't have as much, to, you don't have as much to do during the pandemic. And now all of a sudden with things opening up, oh, you got to go here, you got to go there. It, it's, you're getting uh, getting a little hassled about that. Well, you know, there is there is this. It, it feels like house arrest. Not that I've ever been on house arrest, but when you, the only <laughs> place you could go was the supermarket uh, or the CVS store to get you know some medicine or something. It feels like freedom to be able 
to go someplace else. And the other night evening, we did go out to dinner. But as I said, we saw friends right at the next table, and the instinct was like, oops, no, you can't, you can't do that. So we waved at each other and said, call. But the other thing we have done, which I'm sure people have done all over the country, is we've had Zoom cocktails with our friends. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> and at least we're face-to-face with them and enjoying them uh, from afar. You've been listening to Historians Podcast Extra Edition number 10, What Will the COVID-19 Crisis Mean for Future Generations? We had some thoughts from our, our guest, Patricia Walsh-Chadwick, financial analyst from Connecticut. She previously appeared on Historians podcast discussing her memoir, Little Sister, which told of her upbringing in an extreme religious community in Massachusetts. I'm Bob Cudmore.